Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can all be seated. We're in the last phase of our Outsider series about people that Jesus encountered on his way to the cross, um, beginning with Simon of Cyrene, on through to the thieves on the cross, to the women, um, and even the Roman centurion. It was the roughest, easy to say, it was the roughest time of his life of um, walking to the cross. Actually, this anticipation of his life building up and trying to have his disciples understand that this was something that had to happen and Peter even saying, no, that's not going to happen. He's like, get behind me, Satan, because he understood his purpose was to actually walk to the Christ and cross. And so this story of um, Joseph of Arimathea, um, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a very respected priest, one who was wealthy, it says, in other passages. So this is a, um, a passage about Joseph of Arimathea's story that's told not just in the synoptic gospel, Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also into John. And they have different ways that they talk about it. I love how each um, narrative in the Gospels is concentrated on certain things. So you have Luke, the physician, who was very precise in the way he explained everything. John was very relational and all about love. You have Mark, who was like very direct, like, let's get to it. Jesus is already healing people in Mark 1. Just like right away it happens. And Matthew is very concerned with the genealogy of Jesus because his Jewishness is very important. Um, So I think this is very encouraging for me because it says that God is okay using diverse vessels to tell his story. That it's something that he's not, you know, disappointed with or, oh, I wish you told it exactly this way. But he's fully aware of the things that we bring to the party. And because of that, He is embracing us as a diverse family of people. Joseph of Arimathea is from a mountainous region called Ramah, um, which is in the land of Ephraim, but it's also um, said to be the same place that Samuel is from. So when uh, David is running from Saul because Saul is trying to kill him, he goes to this mountain region to meet Samuel. So it's interesting that the um, person to, to anoint Israel's first king and to anoint Israel's last king are both from the same place. This mountain region where you see God showing his um, prescient knowledge 
of what things are going to happen and how this story is going to unfold. Um, and this is us embracing these different vignettes from the gospel. And what are they saying to us? What are they speaking to us? So I just want to talk about that today a little bit, um, how these outsiders are, are not, we can see ourselves as them. And because of that, we can embrace the mistakes sometimes that it seems like people made. That they weren't all these perfect men and women of God with like capes flying, but they, they went through doubt, they went through fear, they had hard times and families and moving through a society that had an expectation of what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to act. But we can find joy, we can find encouragement in the fact that nevertheless, they still made it into the book. They made it in with all their mistakes. So in John um, 19, turn to it, 19 and 39, it says that he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. This is the only um, version that mentions Nicodemus. So this also goes into the thing of John being relational and understanding like they were moving together. So because Joseph Arimathea was from the Sanhedrin, he was a respected Pharisee. He like was just a smart, wealthy guy, but he was a secret follower of Jesus. He was someone that maybe his closest friends didn't even realize he was following Jesus because of his stature as a part of the council that condemned Jesus. It says, I think, in the Luke account that he didn't agree with what was happening, but he was a part of the party, and he was, he was silent pretty much when these things were happening. Um, but he said he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had visited Jesus early at night. So in John 3, um, Nicodemus comes up to Jesus at night because he's also a secret follower of Jesus, wondering what's going on, like, how are you doing all these things, and um, and in John 3, he says, in John 3 and 4, how can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely, well, I'll start at John 3 and 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus has this account, encounter with Jesus as like creeping through the night. And I think this makes me um, remember how important it is for me to be vocal about who I'm following. Do my friends know that I'm following Jesus? Do they know I am an outspoken member of this outsider tribe of people who believe in a God that we can't see. We believe in a God who did these wonderful miracles on earth and actually empowered us with the Holy Spirit to walk in an amazing way on this world. Do we know that or is this a secretive part of our lives that we live? And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, because of societal pressures, could not tell those that are closest to him that was a part of who they are and who they are called to be. And we have all these ways that it was 
them pressing through this, these barriers to be courageous. They took the body of Jesus, went boldly before Pilate and asked for the body, body of Jesus and touched a dead body, which was illegal for a priest to do, to touch a dead body. If you touched a dead body and you were a priest, you, had to, you were unclean for seven days. And you had to wash your hands on the third day, which is interesting, and then wash your hands again on the seventh day. But because of the whole process of that, um, you couldn't even be in the same space with a dead body. So what they did is they, the priests had tombs for their family that were outside of cemeteries. So this is where Jesus is placed in this tomb that's hewn out of this rock because these priests cannot be among all these, all these dead bodies. So Jesus is set apart in that way. Um, and in the John passage, it talks about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea doing this together. And I think it's because they were friends. They're recognized in the Catholic Church on the same day. The feast is on August 31st for both of them. And what I say is that you need friends to be courageous. You need people to run with, to do things that you didn't thought possible, you didn't think possible before. Not just, we can come in church and it's weird, relational, we have different areas and we have to press through all this stuff. There's this thing going around on Twitter last week that said the real miracle about Jesus is that he had 11 friends in his 30s. <laughs> yeah, okay, that makes sense, you know. When you're in school at first, it's like you're all together and you have this common sense of, you know, going through life and then... When you get older, you start to coagulate in these groups based on where your life situations are, and it becomes so much harder to cultivate relationships. But they are the most valuable thing that we find will get us to where we're going. Friends will help you be courageous when you're afraid. They will encourage you when you're discouraged. But it can be hard to, like, reach through, like, that awkwardness of, I don't know you, you don't know me, like, uh, we don't know each other. But this courage is what brings us into the kingdom and brought Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea to do something that they didn't think possible before. Ask for the body of Jesus, touch a dead body because they're priests, and then come out as followers of the same Jesus. There is something that happens when we move with these people who are cheering us on and saying, you're awesome, you're amazing, you can do it. As a Westerner, and I love information, and as a Christian, I love equipping, getting more stuff, like having more information, but I don't think that leads to action. I think what leads to action is courage. I have this picture of thinking about D-Day. Um, you know, they have all these movies where they're saving Private Ryan of all these uh, American U.S. soldiers who are taking the beach in Normandy, and they're all standing inside these, like, carriers, and bullets are flying overhead, and things are, like, exploding, and they're all sitting in there, and they're like, the thing just closes, and they all run out. I don't think in a moment like that, that someone saying, here's a better helmet is going to make you courageous, or, it's, or here's, here's some more, like, rations. That's going to make you run out. I think it's being lined up with friends and seeing these people that you've already bled with 
and seen in battle that makes you run out like, we can do this, yeah! It's a missing element in this day of individuality. But they, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, seem to have made a pact. He was like, man, look, you know, it's like you're doing a, um, a potluck. He's like, I'll bring the ointment, you get the tomb. And these weren't very, these weren't cheap things. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe was estimated to be 150,000 to 200,000 just for his body. Not even counting what the woman at Bethany had poured already on Jesus a year's worth. 150K to 200K. Um, Joseph Arimathea wasn't supposed to give this tomb away. It was for his family. It was set apart so he didn't have to go into the cemetery as a priest. This is them lavishing courageously on Jesus something that they couldn't even acknowledge when he was alive, that they were followers coming at night, afraid of the Sanhedrin. Imagine what it was like for them to sit there and see their Savior being beat, and they, and they don't agree with it, but they don't speak up. My prayer always is like, God, let me not be silent. Let me not be complicit in crime. Help me to speak out boldly. Don't wait. And don't start from where you left off. Start from where you are. The lie of the enemy is that, you know, you have to go back and make that thing right before you can go forward. Start from where you are. Today is a new day. Today is a day of your salvation. And we get to walk it out with fear and trembling in the moments that we have today. Courage and action happens when you are lined up with people who are willing to run through a wall, you know? <laughs> like... You with people, and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. Oh, you can do it, man. Come on. That wall is only like, you know, three bricks deep. You can do it. <laughs> I don't know. So as an old man at 36, relationships, <laughs> relationships are so valuable. Treat them as precious. Be the first to extend your hand. Because in the end, they were equal to a courage rising up in you that you didn't know you had. This is the beautiful message of what Jesus is doing as they're on the outside, but they're finding a way to come together and to meet. And in um, John 19 and 39, it says, He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had visited Jesus at night, and he had brought the mixture of myrrh and aloe, which was 75 pounds. Such abundance pouring it out, like, just on Jesus without a thought of them understanding who he, fully who he would become. Think of all of the funds that have been raised in Jesus' name throughout the history of the world. This amount that they poured on him is just like, it's like a drop, just a drop in a bucket. It's like every moment Jesus is welcoming us into this generous lifestyle not just with each other, but people we may not even know. Turn to Matthew 19. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Um, and I'm just going to read 21 through 26. And so we know he's a young, cocky dude. 
Jesus, look what all I've done. You know, I got a Bentley, a Rolex. What else do you want from me? <laughs> you know, I've been this amazing person been living. It's like, you know you can't play that game on Jesus. He's just going to throw the level up on you. You know what I'm saying? Not, just, not so it could be insurmountable, but so he can show you the true nature of your heart. Um, in 21, he says, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them. Man, Jesus looked at you. Looked at them and said, With this, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In Jesus, these camels trying to fit through a needle become gates with our heart of generosity. They begin to show that we are following a king who is so very generous to us, and we could be generous as well. And even in Acts 10, when Cornelius is told that his alms to the poor have come up and created a memorial before the Lord, our gifts make stuff in heaven. Our generous gifts create things before the very presence of the Lord. It's not just for us to store up here where moth and rust eats, but put your treasure in heaven where it remains eternally. This is a generosity that follows those who follow Jesus, who pour out our heart um, for him. And generosity is the currency of the kingdom. Once I wanted to go to Africa, and I really, really wanted to go to Africa. And I'm like, I don't know how it was going to happen. Then when I say that story, people are like, are you from Africa? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> A little, uh, you know, kind of. And um, I went to a church. It was actually the first church I ever preached in when I was 12 years old. This is probably about 10 years later I went there, and I felt like I was supposed to take some extra money to the church. And um, when I went there, there was this girl who was going to Africa. And I'm like, I got like $200 in my pocket. What should I do, Lord? It's like, just give it to her. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> so I went and gave it to her. And then I go to Africa with my now wife less than a year later. Now, traditionally we see that say, ah, oh, that's a coincidence, man, you know. And I heard somebody say coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. It's the way that he kind of hides behind his action in humility and doesn't say, it was me, I did it. People wonder, like, if, well, if God is so awesome, how come he's not like Superman, telling everybody he did stuff? In his humility, he hides behind his hand that is constantly working and bringing us together. And this is the generosity that should accompany what we do. He said to the woman who poured the contents of the alabaster jar on him that she was preparing him. 
for his death. In that preparation, we see that God is very, very um, interested in preparing us for where we are to go and what we have to do. I love that Jesus even moved through hard things, but was very aware of what he was prepared to do. As Joseph Arimathea, courageous because he had friends, generous because he had encountered the overly, the most generous one who poured out his life. Like Jesus was walking to the cross converting people on his way to the cross. Like, and we think that we can't be used by God on our worst day. He was walking to the cross and people were like, oh, this has got to be the son of God. Look at the way he's hanging on this cross. Look at the way that he's crying out to his father. Look at the way that honor and glory hang from every fiber of his being. Bruised, hardly even looking human anymore at the point that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus is taking his body from the cross. But because of us seeing that, we can embrace all of our faults, all of our even accepted modes as outsiders. And Jesus moved through preparation. It says in John 19 and 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. and In the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. They broke the legs of the thieves when they were on a cross because they were in a hurry. They had to finish this all up before sundown. Their preparation is when you did everything you did because you couldn't work on a Sabbath. It had to happen before sundown. And so if you think of even now, people in Jewish culture will be vacuuming their house, make sure there's no leaven there because you can't do anything after the sun goes down. And this is the most convenient way for this to happen, for them to place him right in the tomb that's close, that's also um, hewn out of rock. This was impartially to fulfill Isaiah 53 and 9. It says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor there was any deceit in his mouth. The body, seemingly frail body of Jesus, is wrapped in these thousands and thousands of dollars of ointment and linens and placed in this brand new tomb that he wasn't going to use for long. That he was breaking out of it this hard place with the stone rolled in front of it. Why? I don't know. Joseph of Arimathea being a believing member of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin's hearts had been hardened towards Jesus, and he was the one to roll the stone in front of the tomb. This capping a week of hardness of Jesus wrestling with what he had to do, so much so that he didn't stay. He didn't even spend the night in Jerusalem. He spent every night 
going back to Bethany, which was more friendly environs with Bethany and with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Back and forth, because he knew once he spent the night in Jerusalem that his life would be done, that his purpose on the earth would be complete. This holy week that begins with celebration. Today is Palm Sunday. Hosanna! He's coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which everybody expected him to come on a white horse with a Uzi. But he was on a donkey, humbly. This is how it begins and it ends with the celebration of the resurrection. In the middle is the, har- the hardest week ever. This, this hardness that Jesus transformed with his submission to his Father's love and with purpose. And I think of that holy week, and it makes Jesus even more human to me that he's wrestling back and forth. God ever told you anything and you wrestled with him? Uh, it's not the time to do that. No, I don't know. That's not going to happen. It's a week of doing it and how even for us it can feel like torment because it's something that we feel like we should do, but we don't have the right things, the right tools to do it. But I promise you, in preparation, when the hardest heart and the hardest places become ripe soil for the planting of his word. And those hard moments, he is preparing us for something. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. And with thanksgiving, how be a living sanctuary for you. This is what he does to hearts that may be hardened in places that we are. He is always preparing us. I believe preparation is half of the kingdom. This is why. John came to prepare the way for Jesus, pouring all these thousands of dollars of anointing oil on him so he can do what no man had ever done before, fully God, fully man, walking to the cross joyfully. In Ezekiel 36 and 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus animating the darkest, coldest, loneliest place with his presence. I pray that Jesus walks with me wherever I go. Because I know if the Spirit of God could show up and animate a tomb and turn it into a palace, then whatever I'm walking through can be ripe soil for God to make things grow. Be courageous, love, and walk with your friends 
Let them encourage you. Surround yourself with people who will encourage you on and tell you to go. You can do it. You're amazing. You're wonderful. I think that's one of the most beautiful gifts that God has given us, friends. How many of us have them? Friends, be generous. Know that when you pour out your life for the Lord with all you have, with your time, with your resources, you will not look like an idiot. You will not regret it. Putting it all on the line passionately. I don't know, God. He loves us and loves when we are generous. He told um, the woman who broke the alabaster jar that her story would be told forever because of what she had done. Forever. That sounds like a good deal. A year's wages? Uh, Okay. This is us joining with the legacy of who Jesus is. You guys want to stand up? In this moment, I love that Jesus can identify with every bit of darkness that we have to face down. He can identify with all the tough things that we have to walk through sometimes. Um, but it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And as we prepare for this holy week, we remember Palm Sunday and the joy that were in the hearts of the people as he entered Jerusalem, knowing it would be the last time that he did so. But knowing that we, as eternal outsiders, have been embraced by the God of the universe. That is no simple thing. That we can have communion with him daily. That we can respond to his nudging, to his voice, to his touch. Just put your hand on your heart as I pray for you. Father, I just thank you for everyone under the sound of my voice that you have created us to be interwoven into this story that you are telling. That you have called us to be justice seekers. That you have called us to be radical lovers of people in this city and in this world. I pray that your spirit would convict hearts, God, that you would take off any hardness, Father, that you would speak in the midst of hard things that we have to walk through. That you would bring us friends 
that give us courage when we don't have any. We love you, Lord. And these are the moments that your love is made from. And I thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to respond to whatever God is doing in your heart. I know Brian played, played a little earlier about that. Please come and take communion freely as you would like. And just meditate on the resurrection that always comes after the darkness. The joy that always comes in the morning.